Before we begin, a short disclaimer that the information contained in this podcast is general in nature. This is not taking into consideration your personal objectives, financial situations, or needs. So, Shawnee, last week we talked about how you got a dog. Mm-hmm. Your dog's name is Priscilla. It is. And yeah. a man. A male well, dog. Well, it's a male dog, yeah. It's a male dog. <laughs> it's not a man. So, so how are things going? Things are going really well. Yeah. Toilet training's going well. We took it for its first little walk today around Brangaroo. It was very sweet. Okay, that's good. Yeah, when we were practicing this yesterday, so we practiced this on Zoom, mm-hmm. and you're sitting there on your couch, and Priscilla is running around during the whole thing. Yeah, a lot more comfortable. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it was, a, it was distracting for me, but, you know, <laughs> Priscilla seemed to be enjoying herself. I think that's the most important thing. Exactly, yeah. exactly. <laughs> okay, so today we are going to get real Shawnee. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk about investing in real assets. So specifically, we're going to talk about infrastructure and listed property. And I don't know if you ever watched this show, but this makes me think of the real world. So they had <laughs> they had this slogan at the beginning where they said, when seven strangers live in a house and stop being polite and start getting real. So that's like today with our real assets. So did you, did you watch that? Um, I didn't. I mean, I think I know and probably everyone that listens to this podcast knows that I don't have the best taste in media but <laughs> I'm, glad that, I'm glad that you admitted it <laughs> i never um really got into reality tv so yeah i never watched the real world but i i mean my favorite reality television i guess is watching you mark what? i mean should we all update should we update everyone on the fit fin that's my life is your reality yeah. tv <laughs> yeah. well I, I am still going to the fit fin mm, so you haven't broken up with him yet no no, I mean it could happen at any time. Okay, all right. Let's. I won't hold my breath. Okay. Yeah. No, that's good. That's good. The Fitbit says that's bad. By the way, you're supposed to breathe while mm-hmm. you're exercising. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. All this knowledge I learned. All right. <laughs> so, before we get into real assets, we need to talk about why we think this is actually an appropriate time to do this. So, if you've been paying attention to the news lately, any news, but especially the financial news. Um, you start to see more and more mentions of inflation. So energy prices have spiked. We have issues in supply chains with shortages with things like microchips. And then, you know, Shani, I don't want to alarm you here, but potato prices went up 122% in August. (laughs) Now, Shani is a fan of the potato in pretty much any form. And before recording this podcast, she ordered in Guzman. And what's your favorite order at Guzman? Nacho fries, which is quite embarrassing because it does not resemble Mexican food in any way. Let's just say but. most things in Australia that are Mexican food do not resemble Mexican food in any way. But it's still delicious. It is. It yeah. is. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, potato prices are up. Are you worried? Yeah. I mean, maybe we should just stop recording this. I can head over to IGA and hoard some potatoes. Yeah. You know, if there's one thing we learned during COVID is that the reaction to almost any situation is hoarding. <laughs> um, but anyway, potatoes aside... There are increasing worries about inflation, and while we certainly don't have any idea what is going to happen, we can talk about different investments that historically perform well in inflationary environments. And that, of course, brings us to today's topic. And we are doing this not because we have a crystal ball and not because we're taking a side on this inflation argument, where some people are saying it's transitory and some say that we need to prepare for higher levels of inflation going forward. Our goal on Investing Compass is to educate our listeners and provide you with an investing toolkit that you can turn to as conditions change. But please remember that like everything else, you shouldn't be making dramatic changes to your portfolio as the news cycle changes. 
So we think there are merits to all types of different investments in all types of different environments. And that includes listed property and infrastructure. But being an informed investor is understanding how different types of environments will impact different types of investments. So let's start out by talking a little bit about inflation. Since 1900, there have been three major periods of rising inflation. There was a period post-World War I, which I think Mark remembers very well, a period from the mid-1930s until the early 50s, and a period from the mid-60s that lasted until the mid-70s. These periods of rising inflation had really negative impacts on real returns from the share market. And remember that real returns are what we care about as investors because we are saving and investing to pay for something in the future. And you have to take the erosion of purchasing power into account because after all, the goods and services you want to buy in the future will be more expensive. So in all those periods of rising inflation, we've seen really poor real returns. Between 1934 and 1952, the Aussie share market had a 2.4% annual real return. Between 1963 and 1975, Aussie share real return was just 1.8% a year. Those returns are not very good and not what most people need to achieve their goals. Mark just talked about share market returns, but let's take a different type of inv- let's look at different types of investments to see what performed well during these periods of rising inflation. We looked at seven different asset classes: Aussie shares, US shares unhedged, Aussie listed property, Aussie house prices, 10-year Aussie government bonds, 10-year US Treasury bonds, cash and precious metals, gold, platinum and silver, and found that in periods of rising inflation, four of these asset classes had positive returns. The highest returns were in listed property, followed by US shares, housing, and then Aussie shares, which barely showed positive returns. Precious metals, US and Aussie bonds, and cash all showed negative returns. But the interesting thing is that each of these asset classes performed worse on average during rising inflation years. So inflation going up is not a good thing for investors. So let's talk a bit about these asset classes at a high level. We can start with real estate. If we look at the real estate sector, there are two parts of it. There are companies that are engaged in acquiring, selling, developing, operating, managing, and leasing property, including commercial and industrial properties, apartments, and retail sites. And then there are real estate investment trusts that own and operate healthcare facilities, hotels, motels, industrial office, residential, and retail. That second part is what we're talking about today because that represents direct ownership of real estate. So a simple example is Ale Property Group with the appropriate ticker symbol Ale. (laughs) And they own buildings that house pubs, and the pub operators rent the buildings from them. It's a pretty simple business model at a high level. They build or buy real estate and then rent it out. So over time, their profits are the differences between the cost to finance the purchase or construction of the building and what they receive in rent. And with listed property, the rent can, of course, grow over time, but you also have to deal with maintaining the buildings and the fact that there could be periods where the buildings are unoccupied. One other thing to look at when investing in listed property or any investment is for companies with sustainable competitive advantages or moats. When investing in property, we go back to the old maxim of location, location, location. REITs with sustainable competitive advantages are often those companies that have property in prime locations that can't be replicated by competitors. Those locations are very hard to come by and very expensive to purchase or build, so moats are relatively rare in listed property. For instance, in Australia, our analysts cover 20 REITs, and only four of them have a narrow economic moat, and none have a wide moat. Okay, so let's turn our attention to infrastructure investing. Like listed property, infrastructure is a real asset and consists of things that we use every day, like roads, bridges, sewage systems, energy infrastructure, like power grids and pipelines, airports, and ports. 
So infrastructure provides essential products or services which are necessary to support economic and social activity. The fact that these are things that people use every day tells us a couple things about these types of investments. They are non-cyclical, meaning that their fortunes don't follow the business cycle. And there's often a lot of predictability and stability to the cash flows that they generate. And that predictability of cash flows is a result of many of the revenues being contracted or regulated by a government entity. For instance, a natural gas pipeline could have a long-term contract from a natural gas producer, or an electric grid might have regulated rates. Another characteristic of infrastructure is that there is a really high cost to build it, but then a really low variable cost to operate it. For instance, it might be very costly to build a bridge or an airport, but there's a really low cost for each car to cross the bridge or each plane to land at the airport. So what do you get with extremely predictable cash flows, low variable costs to operate and very high costs to build? You get lots of debt. Debt is used to finance the high cost of construction, but investors are willing to lend money because they know that the infrastructure will generate predictable cash flows that can be used to pay them back. So these are low business risk assets, but there is financial risk associated with them because of the high debt levels. In many cases, infrastructure assets have economic moats or sustainable competitive advantages. The source of these moats is generally intangible assets, as the assets are protected by exclusive government licenses, like being the only company allowed to operate an airport. In fact, in many cases, infrastructure used to be something that was built and operated by governments, but to free up public money, many governments have instead sought out private financing for these large-scale projects and made these attractive investments by providing an exclusive license to operate the asset. And a good local example of this is Transurban. Transurban builds or buys highways from governments and then gets exclusive rights to operate them and charge tolls. Driving patterns are often very predictable, and state governments have given Transurban a set schedule of toll increases. So now we've gone through the basics of both infrastructure and listed property and got updates on Shawnee's dog, (laughs) but you should start to see some similarities between them, and that's infrastructure and listed property. No similarities with Priscilla, right? Mm -hmm. She's not predictable and not stable. (laughs) He, see, I I used the wrong gender pronoun. You can use they. Okay. That's fine. Okay. I'll I'll work on that. (laughs) All right. So the similarities are high initial costs, long lifespans with generally pretty predictable cash flows. That means they often have high debt levels, but also offer income or higher income to investors in typical shares. Listed real estate comes in many forms, but the big difference is that many types of real estate are more cyclical and have more exposure to the business cycle than infrastructure. But both do offer inflation protection. So let's walk through why. This is a case of when you need to start looking at the drivers of the cash flows that listed real estate and infrastructure generate. In both cases, you generally have longer-term contracts. In real estate, if you rent out office space or retail space or industrial space, you have long-term contracts with tenants. And depending upon the infrastructure, you may have very long concessions like Sydney Airport, which has operating rights until 2097, or Transurban, which has an average concession of 30 years on its toll roads. With any long-term contract, inflation can be a big risk, and these companies know that. So inflation protections are built into the majority of these contracts. Obviously, research any specific companies you're looking to buy, but these CPI-related escalators are very common. The other inflation protection you get from infrastructure and listed real estate is the fact that inflation increases the value of the assets they hold, because it means building replacement assets becomes much more expensive. We often see inflation hit materials costs and labor costs, which are two big inputs in building a new office tower, for example. So if all of a sudden it costs 20% more to build an office tower, that means an existing office tower will be worth more. 
So let's pivot to how you evaluate these companies if you are looking to do some research. Because there are some really unique aspects of both infrastructure and listed real estate, let's start with earnings and cash flows because this is an interesting nuance about both these types of companies. In both cases, looking at earnings can be misleading with these types of companies. We've covered this in previous episodes, but both of these companies are asset heavy. What that means is that the way that they deliver value to shareholders is through the assets that they own. For instance, a REIT trust that owns malls delivers value from those malls. They rent out spaces to retail stores and that rent is the profit that is returned to shareholders. In the case of a company with natural gas pipelines, the asset is that pipeline and they charge companies to transport natural gas using the pipeline. These assets are tangible and they are held on the balance sheet. We can contrast that with a tech company that generates returns for their shareholders off of intangible assets that might consist of their intellectual property, which is just the collective experience, know-how, and intelligence of their employees, which is legally protected through patents. These intangible assets are not on the balance sheet, and that has implications. Assets on a balance sheet are depreciated, which reduces earnings. Intangible assets, with some rare exceptions, are not on the balance sheet and do not reduce earnings. So when investors evaluate infrastructure and listed property companies, they do not look at earnings, but instead look at funds from operations. So before we get into that, why don't you tell us some examples of why we don't use earnings, Shani? Yeah, sure. So earnings don't represent the true return that flows to investors. Let's look at dividends, for example. Dividends are a portion of earnings that are paid out to shareholders in cash. When we tell you to evaluate dividends, we say to look at the payout rate. The payout rate is a percentage of earnings that is paid in dividends. If the payout rate is too high, it could mean the dividend is unsustainable because if the company doesn't earn enough, they can't pay their dividend. A 100% payout rate means all of the earnings are paid out to shareholders. That leaves nothing to be reinvested back in the company to grow future earnings. But if we take a look at American Tower, which I know is one of your dream shares, Mark, and Dorit, which owns mobile phone towers, over the past six years, the payout rate has averaged just under 107%. Now, seven years of paying out an average of 7% more than you earn isn't exactly a recipe for success. For Not for a company, not for a person, yeah. right? Um, but this, of course, is a company with a lot of tangible assets. So what has happened with dividends over that same time period, Shani? Well, they grew the dividend from $1.81 to $5.24, which is close to 190% growth. Okay. Well, that's good, obviously. Mm-hmm. And this is obviously a bit of an extreme example. But in 2020, American Tower earned net income of $1.69 billion and generated $3.88 billion in operating cash flow and $2.85 billion in free cash flow. And so the focus for valuing REITs is generally look at funds from operations, which involves taking earnings and then adding back in depreciation, amortization, and netting out any gain or loss on asset sales. But our analysts suggest one more change, and that is to take out maintenance cash flows that are needed to keep these assets in good shape, which gives a more accurate view of recurring cash flows. Morningstar Premium is designed to help you reach your investing goals. Our coverage spans over 50,000 securities and 2,000 funds and ETFs. Sign up to a four-week free trial through the link in the episode notes to access our global equity best ideas for our top picks across borders. Find shares with sustainable, above-average dividend payouts and the best opportunities at home with five-star Aussie stocks. A Morningstar Premium subscription includes a ShareSide investor plan, allowing you to track all of your investment holdings in one place. And take advantage of ShareSite's investment performance and tax reporting that has been built specifically for the needs of self-directed investors. If you love premium after your four-week trial and choose to subscribe, 
Your subscription may be tax deductible if you derive income from the share market. Sign up for a free trial today. So let's move on to something that we don't love, and that's debt. But as we discussed earlier, debt is important for infrastructure and real estate investment trusts. And debt may be necessary, but it can be one of the biggest risks. The problem that many of these companies run into is that growth is fueled by debt. If you rent out buildings and you want to grow, you need more buildings, which you can either buy or build. And both involve more debt. So sometimes companies can get a little ahead of themselves trying to pursue growth. So as investors, we want to make sure this debt is manageable. So what are some of the things that we can look at, Mark? Well, first of all, we need to understand that when we are looking at debt measures, we need to compare apples to apples. So make sure that when you're looking at REITs, you should be comparing them to other REITs. The first thing to look at is the overall debt levels, which you can use the debt to equity ratio to evaluate. The debt to equity ratio shows how much debt is being used to run a business. And it's really an interesting ratio because there isn't a good number for it. It varies a lot across industries. And as I just said, it should just be used as a jumping off point to do a bit more research. So take a look at it and compare it to other companies. If it's too high or too low, you're going to want to explore the company more. If it's too low, they probably aren't using debt effectively, which is a key component of both REITs and infrastructures. Think of it a bit like comparing debt to equity in a house. Someone buys a house with no mortgage, you should probably ask some questions. If someone had 0% equity and 100% debt on a house, then you should also probably ask some questions. So for companies that are on the high end of the industry, you want to review in more detail their ability to pay back their debt. So what are some things you should look at? Okay, let's start out and think about the things that debt does to a company. The first case involves a company not being able to pay their debt. The way that bonds work is that you have interest payments and then you have to pay back the principal at maturity. Now, if you get to the point where you can't pay your interest payments, you're really in trouble. In this case, we want to look at the interest coverage ratio or how much do current earnings cover their interest expense. It's also good to explore the debt a bit to see some of the risks associated with the company. See if the maturity of bonds are all grouped together in certain years or more spread out. Having them more spread out lowers the risk the company will default by not being able to pay back their principal or that economic conditions will prevent them from reborrowing more money to replace the debt. Finally, take a look and see if the debt is fixed or floating. With floating rate debt, the cost of servicing the debt will go up if rates rise. And remember that interest rates often rise if there is inflation. If there's too much floating rate debt, this would counteract the positive impacts of having rental agreements with inflation escalators in them. Let's talk about some of the ways that you can get exposure to these asset classes. So why don't you start with ETFs? Because as we know, Shawnee, everyone loves ETFs. (laughs) Okay, so we're going to start out with an active ETF. As we've discussed before, the ability of active management to outperform a passive index varies by asset class. Our analysts feel that as infrastructure has expanded from traditional defensive utility shares to include satellites, mobile telecommunication towers, oil and gas, transportation, and so on, the characteristics of the asset class have changed, and there has been an increase in the dispersion of returns within the asset class, which means there's a good opportunity for active management to shine. And our highest-ranked infrastructure ETF is actively managed. It's the Magellan Infrastructure ETF with the ticker symbol MICH, which received a gold ranking from our analysts. This is an actively managed ETF, meaning managers are making a decision about what goes into the portfolio. This is also an ETF that is hedged, which means that any impacts from currency have been removed. Magellan applies a strict definition of infrastructure, which has resulted in a portfolio that really differs from the benchmark. To make it into the portfolio, a company must possess an asset that is essential for the efficient functioning of society 
and have profits that aren't overly affected by competition, commodity prices, or sovereign risk. So given this approach, what is the implication on this portfolio, Mark? Okay, so why don't we look at sector allocations first? And remember that infrastructure can be in multiple sectors. We can see in this ETF, a little over 50% is in utilities, 33% or so is in industrials, 10% in real estate, and 7% in energy. And this is a global fund, so we also need to look at allocations to different countries. Around 50% is in the US, 16% in Australia, and the rest in various European countries. And the portfolio is relatively concentrated with around 30 holdings, and 50% of the ETF is invested in the top 10 holdings. All right, so what are some of those holdings, Shani? Mm -hmm. So the largest holding with almost 7% of assets is a homegrown company in Transurban, which is followed by Enbridge, which is a North American pipeline company with nearly 5.8% of assets. Eight of the 10 of the top holdings have wide or narrow economic moats, which isn't surprising given the type of companies Magellan is looking to include in the portfolio. One thing you should be very aware of with this ETF is the fees. They charge a 1.05% annual fee plus a 10% performance fee if they outperform their benchmark. That is very high, but overall our analysts obviously do really like this ETF and think the quality of the management and their knowledge of infrastructure investing outweigh the cost. Okay. If you're looking for something cheaper, though, there are some passive options. There's the Vanguard Global Infrastructure ETF with the ticker symbol VBLD or VBuild. <laughs> These uh they're getting very creative with ticker symbols, yeah, yeah. right? So our analysts give this ETF a bronze rating. And as a passive ETF, the fee is significantly lower at 0.47%. As a passive vehicle, this ETF tracks an index, which in this case is the FTSE Developed Core Infrastructure Index. So the index defines infrastructure stocks as those having at least 65% of revenue from infrastructure core activities, including development, ownership, operation, and management of transport, energy, and telecommunications infrastructure. The index and the ETF have 150 different shares in it, which represents subsectors including toll roads, railroads, utilities of all types, and pipelines. And the shares come from about 20 countries, but the index is concentrated in the US with more than 67% of the index, Canada at 13%, and Japan at 5.2%. And when we look at holdings, we see a top three of Next Era Energy, which is a regulated utility in Florida with a growing renewable energy business, Union Pacific, which is a railroad in North America, and American Tower, which we talked about earlier and is Mark's dream company. 39% of the ETF is invested in the top 10 holdings and all 10% of the companies, sorry, all 10 of the companies have received a wide or narrow remote rating from our analysts. Yeah, we should probably stop with this dream company yeah. thing. I'm not like <laughs> laying awake at night thinking I about think American Tower. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm a little more interesting than that, I hope. <laughs> but uh but let's move on to listed property, where none of my dream companies are. Um so listed property is a little more defined than infrastructure because here we have a definitive sector we can look at. So why don't we take a peek at a couple shares? So we ran a screen that looks at the real estate sector in Australia and then filtered out non-REIT shares, which basically takes everything out that doesn't directly own real estate. So what do we come up with? Yeah, so we can see that our analysts rate 20 different companies in Australia. Two of those companies come in at four stars from our analysts. As a reminder, we give a star rating that is based on the discount to our analysts' fair value calculation. Five-star shares represent the biggest discount, with four stars being the second to biggest discount. Those two companies are Cromwell Property Group and Unibel Rodamco Westfield. 
Cromwell mostly owns office real estate, but also has some mixed-use retail and healthcare. Our analysts do not give it a remote rating. Next, let's turn to URW, which started trading on the local exchange when the European real estate owner purchased Westfields. The group has a global portfolio of assets that include malls, offices, and convention space. Once again, our analysts do not give it a moat rating, and they acknowledge that the company has struggled a good deal due to drop-offs with retail traffic related to COVID. The company does have a very high debt that it's trying to pay off, but our analysts do see a recovery in rental income in 2022. All right. So let's go back to ETFs. Mm -hmm. How about that? So like infrastructure, analysts do believe that listed real estate represents a good opportunity for active management, as we believe the sector is under-researched. However, in the case of Aussie listed property, we prefer passive given how small the sector is. Let's start with our highest rated passive ETF that tracks Aussie property. So that is Vanguard Australian Property Securities ETF with the ticker symbol VAP, so less creative. This ETF has a silver rating from our analysts, and it tracks the S&P ASX 300, a REIT index. Now, we need to be clear that the sector is very concentrated in Australia, and this index and ETF is no different. The index has just 30 constituents, and its top 10 names have more than 81.5% of assets. So Goodman Group at close to 25% of the ETF, Center Group at 11.4% of the ETF are the biggest holdings. And despite this concentration, it is our favorite way to get exposure to the local listed property with a fee of just 23 basis points or 0.23%. You're not paying too much. As Mark just mentioned, we believe that in global listed property, we do think there is an opportunity for active management. There are no actively managed ETFs, so let's turn our attention to funds. So this must make you really happy because (laughs) you do love funds. Yeah, I mean, this is sort of like the dream company thing. I do like funds. Okay, so yeah. this is this is what happens at night. I'm laying awake thinking of American Tower, mm. and you were thinking of funds. Yeah, yeah. Love unit trust, yeah. you know? <laughs> so our favorite fund is the Resolution Capital Global Property Fund. Now, before we do get into this fund, there is one thing to know. The minimum investment is $25,000, which is a lot for some investors. But our analysts give it a gold rating and love the management team and the investment process which mixes top-down thematic and bottom-up fundamental research to arrive at a concentrated 40-60 to stock portfolio with little resemblance to the benchmark. The top 10 holdings are 44% of the fund, and the top three are Prologis, which is an American company that owns distribution centers for e-commerce retailers, Invitation Homes, which is the U.S.'s largest single-family rental real estate investment trust with a portfolio of over 80,000 homes, and Welltower, which is another U.S. company that owns senior housing, which... Mark will soon move into. Wow, that's that's your second old <laughs> joke during this. But I will say that if I was around for World War One, as you said earlier, mm-hmm. just moving into senior housing now You're doing would be pretty well. I know, I know. Um, so I've got something going for you. <laughs> well, despite Shawnee's love of funds, we obviously pointed out that this fund has a very high minimum. So for investors that are looking to invest a smaller amount of money, you can turn to passive ETFs. While these are not our preferred way to access global listed property, we do have two ETFs that our analysts give a bronze rating to. The VanEck FTSE International Property Hedged ETF with the coveted ticker symbol of REIT, (laughs) R-E-I-T, and the Spider Dow Jones Global Real Estate ETF with the ticker symbol of DJRE. So they both track different indexes, but honestly, they're pretty similar. So if you look at the top 10 names, you'll see the same names in country allocations. And uh, yeah, 
our analysts think they're pretty equivalent with the same uh, with the same rating. All right. So we've covered a couple of different things today. We've talked about inflation and then looked at two asset classes that traditionally have performed decently during inflationary environments. We also looked at some characteristics of both infrastructure and listed property, which is high debt levels, but the potential for strong moats and consistent and steady cash flows. And one thing that we should probably emphasize here is that you do not need to have an inflationary environment for these to be great investments. I've personally always been drawn to infrastructure investments because they are able to generate steady cash flows in all sorts of economic environments. And they often have competitive advantages built into their business model. These are low-risk business risk companies, which generally pay relatively high dividends or just what I'm comfortable with as an investor, and they fit my temperament and my goals. And as we've said multiple times on this podcast, it's about finding the best investments for you. And in my case, that's led me to invest in infrastructure over the course of my investing life. But thank you guys very much for joining. That concludes our episode on infrastructure and listed property. Hopefully Priscilla is listening at home, who <laughs> emits this sort of high pitched squeak mm-hmm. when it's he gets cute. when he gets excited. Yeah. Um, I saw I saw Priscilla this morning mm-hmm. and a lot of squeaking going on. He's very excited to see you. I think Priscilla actually likes me. Yeah. I think you have to admit that. Mm-hmm. And if you guys like us, then you can give us a rating and a comment on your podcast app or share our podcast with your friends. So thank you very much for joining. Any advice in this podcast is general advice or regulated financial advice under New Zealand law prepared by Morningstar Australasia Proprietary Limited and or Morningstar Research Limited without reference to your financial objectives, situations or needs. You should consider the advice in light of these matters and any relevant product disclosure statement before making any decision to invest. To obtain advice for your own situation, contact a financial advisor.